Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. And today's episode is recorded live at the Blue Note, uh, because my guest is Gary Burden, jazz vibraphonist, who is here in the middle of a week-long gig. And he is also the author of Learning to Listen, The Jazz Journey of Gary Burden, which is published by Berkeley Press, where he was a teacher and administrator at the Berkeley School of Music in Boston for several years. I'm delighted to have you on the show today, Gary. Well, nice to be here. One of the really important themes of learning to listen, I found as I was reading it, it's pretty much right there in the title. You talk a lot about, over the course of your your half century as a professional jazz musician, about learning to listen to what you describe as your inner player. And it started out when you first started getting serious about jazz and were beginning to improvise and all of a sudden found yourself actually improvising in ways that you weren't conscious of controlling. At the beginning, when you're learning to improvise, you tend to consciously you know, monitor everything you're playing to make sure you don't make mistakes, you don't hit wrong notes, do that sort of thing. But at a certain point of fluency, it becomes more automated, and you find yourself playing things that you hadn't, you know, thought about before, or or checked them out and vetted them to see, make sure they were going to sound good. It's it's similar to the way we converse. We don't think about nouns and verbs and pronouns and sentence structure as we talk. We do, however, speak mostly correct grammatically uh, because our brain has uh, both filed away a nice big vocabulary to choose from and has a good sense of the rules of grammar, so it will put the words into the right order as they cross into our conscious awareness and as we speak them. So that same spontaneity that happens in everyday conversation is ultimately what happens in improvisation musically uh, once you reach a certain level of fluency. Like, yes, it's true if you learn any new language, you eventually can just think in the language and speak spontaneously in the language. And so that was a big aha moment for me. You know, I had been playing jazz for a few years already, and I'd already, already been on a few records even, but it was uh, at about age, I'm going to say 18 or so, living in Boston as a student and playing on a quite regular basis that I began to have these moments where I would, would feel like I would just play something and had no idea what I was going to do next, and it would just come tumbling out, I began to notice that uh, it was usually the best thing I played the whole evening, and that it was a very exhilarating sense of freedom. I decided, okay, this, this must be something that's supposed to happen. I came to welcome it, and then gradually that became my pretty much my way of playing. And I want to circle back to something that you said there. You mentioned that you, this was happened when you were 18, and you had already been working professionally and recorded your first few albums at the mm -hmm. point. And that emphasizes that you started out very young on the vibraphones. I did. I mean, I started playing the instrument when I was six, and that's pretty common. That's actually the, the golden age for starting music is five, six, seven, eight years old. You'll see very few musicians who started when they were 25 uh, become proficient. It's, it's rare. There's something that happens in that early youth that uh, allows you to learn music on a very intuitive level that serves you well later as, as a musician. 
But my career also got started very early, in part because I played the vibraphone. There weren't many around, and I had become fairly proficient at it. So when people needed a vibraphone player, I was one of the possibilities. I'm sure if I'd been a piano player, my career probably would have, you know, waited a four or five more years before it would have reached a full professional level because, you know, there are plenty of piano players around. But I got a couple of lucky breaks when I was a teenager and, you know, went on from there. And as you say, it was it's a very was a very new instrument in the fifties when you started. Well, you started playing, I think, in the late forties. Nineteen forty nine was my 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 initial year, which seems like you know a century ago now to me, but it is half a century ago, I guess we would say. Even within jazz, there was only pretty much like at that point like one generation right. of vibraphone players. Well, the vibraphone was twenty years old when I started on it. And so you can imagine there weren't that many players established already, uh, nor was it a very widespread instrument. The, the main reason it got even recognized at all was due to the wide popularity of Lionel Hampton, who uh, was the real pioneer father of the vibraphone, and because he played with Benny Goodman's band for five years in the 30s, that was the most famous jazz band of the day. So a lot of people got to see a vibraphone uh, in that era. Ironically, now, when I mention Lionel Hampton's name to people, unless they're in their 70s, they all go, who? You know, it doesn't take long before you, you get forgotten, I guess. Once you started playing professionally as a jazz musician, right around the time that you started at, at Berkeley as a student, what was it, the summer before your freshman year, you detoured to Nashville yeah. and like some sessions yes. with Hank Garland? I was finishing up high school, and a local musician I knew, relatively well-known eventually, a saxophone player named Boots Randolph, who uh, had some famous novelty music records later on. Yakety Sax was one of his hit records. He had started working in Nashville, which was a few hours away from where I was growing up in southern Indiana and mentioned that there was a guitarist in the Nashville scene who had become a, a, a jazz player as well as country music and was planning to make a jazz record and had hoped to find a vibraphone player. But there were none in Nashville, being a country music town. I got invited to come down to Nashville and meet Hank Garland, this guitarist. We jammed a couple of songs at a studio one afternoon before he started a record session, and he asked me what I was, what my plans were. And I said, I, well, I'm going to finish high school in about six weeks, and then I'm going to go to Boston to college in the fall. So he proposed that I move to Nashville for the summer, that we would work weekends at a local club, and we would make this record. And that's exactly what happened. The, the day I finished school, I loaded up my Volkswagen and went down to Nashville, and he helped me find a, a a rental apartment for the summer. And not only did we make his record, but uh, I also managed to get hired for a handful of just commercial recording sessions, including the first record I was ever on that went gold. It was uh, pianist Floyd Kramer, a sort of a famous country name. Uh, this was his first record, and he asked me to be on it, so I'm there in the background playing quiet little chords, no, not much, but at least I'm on it. But the big news of that summer was that RCA Victor, uh, one of the largest labels at, at that era, offered me my own record contract at the end of the summer before I went off to college. I was kind of 
you know, on cloud nine as I landed in Boston to begin school at age 17, already with a record contract in my pocket. Right. And they were covering tuition and that's, expenses. That's the other thing is that <laughs> it's something that companies don't do. They believed in people being on the label for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And so I, I said, well, I'm going to college. They said, okay, well, we'll help you with that. And they paid my living expenses as long as I stayed in school. I would get a check every month, pay the rent and, and my food and, and that sort of thing. There was actually that one point you write about where, as you were wrapping up, at Berkeley, they were like, you sure you don't want to stick around? <laughs> yeah, yeah. one of the executives, when I announced that I decided to move to New York and uh, see if I could get my career really uh, going full blast, and he said, oh, well, you, you're really, you're sure you want to leave school now before you finish? I, I had to chuckle to myself to think that they actually were willing to keep on paying my expenses. But they had also made it clear that they wouldn't be able to sell all that many records of mine as long as I was just a sideman in other people's bands or whatever, that ultimately the goal was for me to reach the point where I could have my own band. Mm -hmm. And I was with RCA for eight years, a pretty good run. Halfway through that eight years, I I was ready to start my own band, and they helped me get launched. And this is one of the things about the jazz world in terms of like professional recording and, and performance that has always fascinated me. The fluidity with which you can move from being a sideman in someone else's band to, at a certain point, deciding, I, okay, you know, working under this person has been great, but I have this other creative project that I... Yeah. Or, or just, even if it's not completely moving on, that sometimes it's like you you continue to be a sideman in somebody else's band, but mm. you have a creative vision that really you can only fulfill under your own yeah, well, entourage. Nowadays, it's most common for uh, a musician to be a side musician in a name band, a known band, but at the same time start their own band and work with it as much as they can with the the goal being to eventually just have your own band. Now that didn't seem a possibility back in the 1960s because when you joined a band, you worked nonstop. The first year I was on the road with George Shearing, I kept a diary, and I, I was gone 312 days that year. So there really wasn't an option to also work separately with, with a group of my own during the year with George. And then three years I was touring with Stan Getz, same thing. It was flat-out busy schedule. I might have had the equivalent of two or three weeks vacation out of the year. In that environment, you do, you did make a, you know, a leap of faith to leave a solid, secure job and try it on your own with a new band and see if it catches on or not. And I'm grateful to this day to Stan Getz for being very generous with his praise and showcasing me. All, all the members of the band. He in- introduced our names a lot. He featured us playing s- special pieces and so on. Some jazz bands, it's built around the leader. It's all about the leader. In fact, that was sort of the way with George Shearing. Uh, we were a st- obviously just a support band, and he was the main star, did most of the soloing and so mm-hmm. on. Stan was the opposite. He really featured the guys and talked us up to the audiences. That played a, a big part in my having a following when I made the move in 1967 to start my own band. You write about how 
once you started your own band at RCA and then continued on at, at, at Atlantic and, and then on to ECM, which we'll, we'll talk about ECM in a little bit. RCA and Atlantic were both very supportive of the type of music that you were doing mm-hmm. at a time where, I mean, you were doing jazz rock fusion about two to three years before people noticed that jazz rock fusion was a thing. <laughs> right. You know, I came up with the idea for this because it was what I was listening to. I mean, I had become a big Beatles fan in the mid-60s. They arrived in, I think, 64, 65. I was 23, 24 years old, so I was still at the right age to be uh, kind of open to things like this. And, and I came up through country music, so I had a nice, healthy respect for that genre of music as well. And I took one look at the audiences that I had been playing for while I was with Stan Getz and George Shearing, these were people in their 40s and 50s, and I was in my early 20s. And I did the math and figured out that by the time I'm in my 40s and 50s, those people are going to be gone, so they're not going to be coming to see me play. Mm-hmm. I wanted to connect with my own age group somehow, because they weren't coming to the jazz clubs and jazz gigs in, at, at that time in, in the history of things. So I just simply asked myself, well, what do young people like to listen to? And, of course, it was the new rock music and folk music and pop and so on. And I was enjoying this new music as well. So it's, it just seemed a pretty natural direction for me to try. I found a guitar player who also was heading in this same direction, Larry Coriel. In fact, he was in a rock band that was sort of jazzy. They didn't really uh, get very far but they put out a couple of records. Uh, they were called the Free Spirits. I met Larry at a jam session. I thought, this is it. This is perfect. He plays jazz, but with these constant rock licks, mix it mixed in with his jazz playing. That's, that was how it began. And it, it took a few years before more groups and more musicians took an interest and started going that same direction. As I mentioned, after a couple of years with big labels like RCA and Atlantic doing that, you were kind of in at ECM very early in the process. Yes. And ECM is a label that I think fascinates a lot of mm-hmm. not just jazz fans, but classical fans yeah. over the years. And it's it seems like it's because it's a small label that has had a, a very specific artistic vision and has maintained that vision very consistently over mm-hmm. the past 40 years. Well, the brains behind ECM is Manfred Eicher. Well, the brain. <laughs> it's, his, it's him. He's produced all the records, for the most part, up the, on the label, and it's really his vision of what kind of jazz he likes, and he branched into classical, sort of new classical music for the most part. It's not traditional classic, classical. He likes to find new composers or performers who are doing something a little more uh, uh, current. But he's, I think jazz is still his main focus. As he says, it's, it's what pays the bills. I met Manfred uh, through Chick Corea. We played a concert in Munich as part of the... 1972 Olympics, and there was a jazz festival meant to coincide with the Olympics. So one segment of this festival featured solo performances uh, by individual players. I played solo vibraphone, Chick played solo piano, there was a trombone player who played a a John McLaughlin on guitar, uh, Jean-Luc Ponty on 
violin. The promoter wanted some kind of finale and asked, you know, well, can you guys all come together and play some piece like a band? And everybody said no, because most of us aren't big on jam sessions anyway, but there was, you know, we had the wrong instrumentation. There was no bass and drums available to sort of make it a band. All we had were lead instruments. But Chick and I, we had played together briefly a few years earlier. So, so we thought, what the heck, we could play a tune together, just the two of us, piano and vibes. Right. And in fact, you had actually sort of tried him out as a potential band member. Yeah, and, and it, it didn't work out didn't, then. It didn't click the first time we tried it, and we thought it would. We were all excited about it and thought this is going to be a, a dream band. And it just seemed that we did a half a dozen gigs over a few couple of three weeks or so and it just never settled and clicked the way we wanted it to or expected it to and we so we sort of we, then we had a little time off period and we looked at each other in fact we were playing at the village gate a, a club here in manhattan that was a, a big place at the time on the last night we said well this this isn't working out so i went back to guitar players and chick Soon, about a week later, I, I think it was, called me up to say that he had just been hired to be in Miles Davis's band, so he was happy. But there we were in Munich playing our one tune. The audience exploded. They loved it. And Manfred was there, because uh, that's his hometown, and he already knew Chick. So he came up to us, introduced himself to me, and said, you've got to make a record like this. You've got to make a duet record. And we kind of went, oh, well, come on now, you know, a whole hour of duet music, I mean, without a rhythm section or whatever, you really think that'll catch on. But he was persistent and kept writing us and calling, and so six months later, there we were back in Europe playing one concert that he had arranged, and then on to the recording studio to uh, make a record together, which went surprisingly easily. We did the whole thing in about three hours, one take each on the tunes. It was startlingly uh, easy to do, and the chemistry between us was terrific. But even then, I didn't think there, there were anything would come of it, because ECM was a small German label that didn't even have U.S. distribution yet. You had to order it as a foreign thing and pay extra money and, every, and wait for it to come in the mail. So it wasn't going to you know, reach a lot of people, we didn't think. And it was a pretty esoteric concept as well. record was called Crystal Silence. It came out quietly. We started getting calls uh, to our management office. We both had the same agent and manager then, and we do today as well, same one. <laughs> we kept, started getting calls, people wanting to book us for concerts. And that's when I realized, you know, there's this is working, and people are noticing and that was 41 years ago. We're still doing it. We play every year. We've never skipped a year. We do some touring each year and a lot of touring if we have a new record coming out that year. We'll put aside almost everything else and concentrate on kind of hitting all the world markets and so on, which we just did two years ago. Now we're back to a sort of one month a year. What you said about how originally when Crystal Silence came out, the difficulties of American audiences or American listeners even finding it and getting it reminds me, as somebody who has been working with record labels and trying to sell records and reach audiences for a half century, how have things changed in that sense from the time that you started out to today? 
when I sort of try to grasp that, I look at two things. One, the rapid ubiquity of compact discs. Mm -hmm. And then two, in the last 10, 15 years in particular, the way that the internet has made it. You know, there was a time where if you were into a particular subgenre, it's like you kind of had to track down information yeah. about it. It's a lot easier to find things. Yeah. Now. Things are more confused now. And it's, it's a big problem for the record companies because the, the old business model is, you know, not working so well. And nobody has found out what the new business model is going to be. It hasn't settled yet into into uh, whatever the long-range future is going to be. Presumably, even the CD is going to go away at some point, and it'll all be on your computer. In fact, I, I remember predicting this like 15 years ago. I was having a conversation with the, the head of uh, GRP Records, a label I was on for eight years, in the uh, 80s and early 90s, I had just been reading about this this new concept of the the set top box that would hold all your the you know the the world's jukebox. It would have every record ever made and so on. Kind of a fantasy at the time, which is increasingly becoming a reality now. And I predicted to this guy that eventually I would have a, a box on my shelf. They would have all my recorded, all the recorded music I ever wanted right in there. And the only thing I got wrong was the size of the box. It actually is an iPod <laughs> that goes in your pocket instead of a, a thing the size of a cigar box, which is what I was picturing. But it's been a challenge for up and coming musicians or even established musicians because the, the balance of what the record label does and and so on how you could reach your fans and this, uh, this promoting my new cd and my book i'm increasingly aware of how different things are now you know the usual uh, advertising doesn't accomplish much anymore you have a core group of fans that will find you no matter where you're playing or where your your records are and so on so let's just say okay there's 5,000 of them or 10,000 of them and they you can count on them to buy every record that you put out and come to your gigs and so on but you want to get beyond that as much as possible and find new fans and it may only be people who like one or two of your records. They aren't hardcore fans, but you you know you want to sell those records as well and and reach new people. Now I'm doing most of my promotion on Facebook. I have fifteen thousand followers on my Facebook page, and so I'm constantly showing pictures of the gigs and announcing new things, new projects I'm in, and so on. It's the way all the musicians now. Put the word out about where they're going to be playing, what their you know new records are going to be, and so on. In some ways, we don't have the record companies to rely on to handle this stuff for us the way that it used to be. But uh, it actually makes it easier in some cases for the young musicians who couldn't get a record contract in in their early stages of their career, but they can nowadays. They can make their own CD fairly inexpensively, and they can market it as well through the social networks and so on. So we're, people are finding the new avenues. I hope it settles into a more predictable process before too long, because it's it's unsettling to sort of have to reinvent uh, your you know, the way you go about it every couple of years which is sort of what's been happening. With everything that you've got going on, what was the impetus to, to write a memoir? Well, I had started thinking about 
writing a book 10 years ago, roughly. I started concluding that I had some interesting stories to tell and that my own life story was uh, sufficiently unique. I'm counterintuitive in, in, in a lot of ways. I grew up in a small farm town in, in Indiana. I've made my way to the big city and this music that's essentially an urban kind of, of uh, genre. And uh, I finally figured out that I'm gay about midway through my life, rearranged my life as a result of that. So, you know, my story, I felt, was at the very least unique. And uh, maybe I should try to write it down and see, you know, what I've got. And I started out keeping a stack of index cards. Every time I'd remember an anecdote or a funny story that happened or something wise that some musician said in my company or just things that I thought might be interesting to try to talk about creative process and so on. I would jot down little things on the cards till I ultimately had a hundred or more cards with a rubber band around them that I carried around everywhere. So that was the beginning. I started trying to write it in sort of first in chronological order just to see what I had. As it began to take shape, I discovered I had three themes that I wanted to weave together. One was what the jazz life is like, and that's typical of every jazz bio, of course. Then another thread was my own personal journey of self-discovery, finally finding out who and what I am and, and adjusting my life accordingly. And the third thread was to try to explain how the creative process works for performers. But for years, you know, you get this, people come up to you and say, how do you do that? How do you know what notes to hit? There's no music there in front of you. How do you know what the other players are going to play and how it always sounds right? You never seem to make mistakes, but yet you don't know what you're going to play uh, five seconds from now. How does, how can that possibly work? I wanted to see if I could shed some light on that. You might not remember this. Did you read Dr. Shivago mm -hmm. by Boris Pasternak? There's a section in there where uh, the, the lead character is in a uh, snowbound cabin writing poetry, and essentially it, there's this long explanation of how to write a poem that Pasternak included, and that really struck me. I said, That's, I've got an appreciation for poetry now that I'd never had before. I, I see now how the, the creative steps take place in, in this kind of thing. I thought that was brilliant. So I had those three themes, and the third, the additional thing I wanted to do was to not so much write about my history of, well, then I made this record, then we did that record, and then I was in that band and that band. But I wanted to write about the handful of important musicians I got to know over the years who had been big influences for me or personal friends to me, and that ranging from Duke Ellington to Lionel Hampton uh, and Red Narvo and Chick Corea and Pat Metheny and Samuel Barber and Astor Piazzolla and so on. Personal portraits of these people that were very meaningful to me during my, my career. The approach to talking about your life as a gay man is really interesting. It, there's two passages in there that I'm, I'm struck by in that sense. 
Uh, one is when you're talking about recording Ingenue with Katie Lang. Mm-hmm. And she picks up immediately. And, you know, you two are having this conversation about, like, well, you know, do we talk about this to anybody else? You mm-hmm. know, do, do, do we, the world being what it is? And then a couple of years later, but much earlier in the book, I mean, you lead off with the story of being on fresh air and pretty much being blindsided by Terry Gross asking you about, so, so you're gayer. And it's like, okay, great. This is how I come out to the world. <laughs> yeah, I had already come out in a small way right. to friends and family and the musician friends and so on. Most people didn't know it yet, but it was starting to to evolve and I still don't know I never asked her exactly how she found out with some other musicians her husband is a, is a jazz writer so knows everybody so you know it may have may have been just through the musician grapevine but it caught me off guard no one had ever asked me in a public forum about it and I know with KD uh, she had been dodging these questions for several years and told me it was because she didn't want to embarrass her mother living up there in Edmonton, Canada. Her mother had sort of asked her to go easy on that. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't want my friends to feel awkward about this and so on. But uh, Katie soon opened up about it anyway. Did a cover story for the Advocate, and that, about a year later, and that was that. I had a, a you know a split second there of hesitation when Terry first asked, uh, "So you're." You've, you've come out, and how has that affected your playing or your career? You know, and I said, well, I'd always said to myself, whenever it does come up eventually, go ahead and talk about it. The show ran four or five times over the next five years, and I, I knew every time it happened, I would get another bunch of letters from people. None of them ever critical, mm-hmm. which surprised me. I'd expected some outrage from some quarters, but I've had a, a very good experience uh, in, in regard to coming out as gay. I've never had people calling me names to my face or that it sort of thing. Certainly doesn't ever sound like you've lost gigs or... Never did. If anything, my career has only been better since I came out. I continued to win Grammys every few years. I've continued to work with the same high-level players and in my various collaborations, and everybody stepped up immediately and said, that's ter- terrific, how, how good for you to do this, and we're proud of you, and so on. So, uh, yeah, nothing but good reactions all around. In the jazz world now, do you think it's easier, or would it be easier for, for a young musician about your age when you started out to make his or her way in the jazz yeah. world as an out gay or lesbian? I'm sure it, it that it would be, and I, in fact, I'm, I suspect there's a few openly gay that I just don't know about. And in fact, there was an interesting article in Huffington Post about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the actor, who uh, has been asked frequently, uh, is he gay or not? And his response in this interview was that this day and age, it's it's not even appropriate to get into discussing are you or are you not. It shouldn't matter where you are on the spectrum of of sexuality, and, and I think it's actually getting to that point. I got married recently to my longtime partner. Uh, we've been together eight and a half years now, and thought 
you know, maybe it's about time we made it official, but that shows you how much things have changed since, uh, what, 1988, when I first became self-aware that I was gay. In addition to the new album, which is out now and which you're, you're touring in support of, what else is going on for you in the in the near future? Well, I've gone back into teaching somewhat. I had retired from education after 33 years at Berkeley. When I turned 60, I thought, well, maybe it's time to go back to just being a musician. It's a little more free time for myself and so on. So I moved to Florida, which I love, having the leisurely life of, of a jazz musician with lots of time off in between tours and so on. But I started something as I was leaving Berkeley which was uh, to launch an online music school, which over the decade has become quite a successful venture. And they offer over 100 courses, and it's it's quite a uh, an achievement. And the more I was told about it and kind of watching from a distance, you know, how it was going, the more I got tempted to somehow get involved. So I created a course in improvisation. I shot about a hundred video clips, me demonstrating and talking and showing, uh, you know, how different things are done and uh, created play-along tracks for the students to record themselves with and they send them to me to be critiqued and so on. And we have a live video conferences every, every week as well. I'm enjoying it to the fullest. I've been doing it two years now, and I'm definitely going to keep on with that. Well, I hope the, the tour is going great and the, the courses continue to go great. The book is Learning to Listen, The Jazz Journey of Gary Burden. It's published by Berkeley Press, and I've been talking with Gary about it on Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for listening, and I hope I'll see you again soon on another episode.